Oh, my goodness. Don't judge me. That is like one of my favorite sitcoms. This Sheldon, this obnoxious, pretentious, know-it-all, right? He is the smartest guy in the room. And if there's people in the other room, he's smarter than them, too. I mean, this is just Sheldon, right? And uh, I played this because I want to talk today about now you see it, now you don't. Kind of this illusionist type thing that's happening. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this, up until the end where, you know, Raj does this, you kind of don't, you, you're, you're kind of wondering yourself, how is he doing this trick, right? And then it dawns on you, they're all in on it. Uh, you know, Raj, Sheldon does, is not in on it. Um, who's the others? Penny, Leonard, who? Wallowitz, yes, Howard. They're all in on it. So they're all playing this trick. They're playing on the assumptions and conclusions of Sheldon. The assumption that he's the smartest guy in the room, right? The assumption that you can't get anything by me. I can understand everything. I know everything. He's just this know-it-all. And it's hilarious when you get to the end and you realize that Sheldon still can't understand it. And here's here's the thing. Sheldon is so focused on figuring it out that he's oblivious to the obvious. He misses the obvious. He's so focused on the science of it and the trick of it, and he thinks he assumes that he knows how he's doing it. And if you watch the whole episode, he goes into this long, days long, trying to figure it out, marking cards, scanning cards. He even went as far to get uranium to mark a card so that he could figure I mean, it's just this elaborate. He's trying to calculate and figure it out. And the simplest, obvious thing is right in front of him. No one, Howard never asks him to take a card until the end. And then how, you know, Raj does the two of hearts thing. But this is a funny episode for us and that we watch and that we laugh at. And I understand. How many of you have ever gone to a magic trip? show or an illusionist maybe as a kid you saw an illusionist do a, I was asked my daughter I practiced one this week and of course I'm not going to do it because I don't want to embarrass myself but I was going to make you know a coin disappear and uh, I don't know if it's because I have bad thumbs or hands I couldn't figure it out so but you've been and you've watched these tricks and these illusions and you, you you're like oh wow this is cool this is neat and your mind is just racing and you're trying to calculate I know how he's doing it I know how he's doing it. and just about that time you think you know how he's doing it the illusionist will show you reveal that and you're like oh that's not how he did it now I don't know how he did it and you're always trying to calculate and figure that out this is magic now for all of you Harry Potter fans I'm sorry I got to inform you Magic isn't real, okay? It's not real. There are no waving of the wands. There is no, you know, this, this trick that, that they did on Sheldon was a trick. It was a trick. And most illusionists have a trick. But they have this incredible way of making you look here while they're doing something over here. All right? I want you to remember that. Magic is not real. Illusion is actually psychology. A great illusionist understands people. They understand that we have to look and we have to observe. And they'll play on that. 
They'll use techniques of misdirection and they'll use techniques of cognitive illusion. Sheldon even mentions that, right? A good illusionist knows that most people in the audience are asking, how did he do that? How did he do that? It's in our nature to want to know. It's in our makeup to figure it out. It's in our understanding to want to understand how a trick like that happens. We just cannot believe until we see. We have to see it to believe it. Just like Sheldon doesn't believe it until he can figure it out. Until at the end he just can't figure it out and then he gets frustrated, throws his hands up and he marches off, right? This is why the really great magicians never tell their secrets. They just don't. They go to their grave with their greatest illusions and their secrets of how they made that work. Anybody remember David Copperfield? Did anybody ever figure out how he made that Statue of Liberty disappear? I'm glad he put it back where it needs to go, right? But he did this in front of a live audience, in front of live TV, national TV. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And he keeps those things secret. As long as you can believe what you are seeing, you will engage with the illusionist. You will stay in tune with the illusionist. You will keep attentive to the illusionist because it is the anticipation of the trick. It's the assumption, the expectation. It's the mystery that keeps us coming back for more. As long as I am engaged and intrigued with the trick, as long as I haven't quite figured it out and I'm trying to continue to figure it out, I will continue to buy tickets for the next show. And they know this. It's psychology. If we know everything now, then we won't be amazed by anything later. Think about that for a moment. If I know everything now, life would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? If I knew everything now, then it makes it all that more difficult for me to be amazed by anything later. There is no joy in opening up a gift when you already know what's in it. There's no mystery. There's no, you know, excitement and anticipation. I read one author who said, anticipation is the electricity of childhood. Think about that. It's a wonder Jesus said that to be in the kingdom, we must become as little children. I don't think he means immature and spoiled little kid, people. He means we should have that anticipation, that excitement. Anticipation. And so when an illusionist keeps the trick going, as you saw on the clip and through the whole thing, Sheldon pretends to not be engaged, but oh, is he engaged. He is all about that trick because he can't quite figure it out. And it keeps him coming back. It keeps him going back. It keeps him trying to figure it out. It keeps him in the game, so to say, because of the anticipation of figuring out what happened. In many ways, Jesus is a man of mystery. 
just like a good illusionist. You say, wait a minute, you mean Jesus hides things from me? Well, if you read the Gospels, he doesn't always come out clear and plain. He doesn't always give us the clues, and he doesn't always give us everything at once, but he just simply wants us to be engaged. I don't believe that Jesus was being deceitful, but he definitely didn't tell us his secrets right away, did he? Especially the first disciples. He just simply said, follow me. Come and see. When reading the Gospels, there are many times that I wish Jesus would just be clear and plain with them. There are many times I say, you know, I, I read through it and I'm like, Jesus, why don't you just reveal who you are wholly and completely now? What's with the, okay, now don't tell anybody? What's with the, they were slow to understand? What's with the, you know what, just come with me and you'll see what's going to happen? Why can't you just tell them? Why can't you just lay their life out for them, lay your life out for them? Just be clear with them, right? Jesus wasn't like that, but instead he was sort of a man of mystery in many ways. I wish he just would have given the evidence and revealed the clues that he was the Son of God. But he doesn't. Instead, he simply invites the first disciples and he invites us, come and see. Follow me. Come and see. He says, follow me. And then you will see. So why does he operate like this? Why does he keep guessing? Why does he keep us guessing and wondering, who is this guy? I think Jesus wants to shake up our assumptions. I think Jesus wants to rattle us a little. He wants to challenge our conclusions and our assumptions that we make. But why? I think it's because when we assume, we miss the possibilities of what might be. When I think I've got Jesus all figured out, I might stop chasing him. When I think I've got Jesus all figured out, and, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I've read my Bible through a few times, and, and you know, I've been doing the church thing, and, and, and I, I'm in this, and I've been doing this for a long time, yeah, I got this figured out. I think when we assume and we conclude, we miss out on the possibilities of what it means to follow Him. We miss out on the greater things. I'll explain that in a minute. We get so easily distracted by what we think we know that what we think we have, we've got it all figured out. And we become distracted. We are distracted by our assumptions. We're distracted by our conclusions. We're looking over here at this when what's really happening is over here. And this is somewhat what it's like to follow Jesus. We have to focus back on this and not what we assume. And here's the thing about the assumptions in life. Once we think we know, it becomes very difficult for us to move beyond what we know. Nathaniel, 
who was a disciple of Jesus, one of the first ones called to follow, he got caught up with an assumption. Nathaniel got Nathaniel almost missed the most important thing that he could have ever done in his life. Nathaniel almost missed this incredible, life-changing experience. Why? Because he assumed something about Jesus that wasn't true. He had this assumption that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. When they came to him and Philip says, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Christ, the Son of God. Come on, let's go see. And Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He almost missed the greatest opportunity, the greatest life change, the greatest journey that anyone could possibly take because he had an assumption that was wrong. He assumed that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. So our text today, Jesus is ready to go. Jesus is ready to start his ministry. He's about 30 years old now. He's been baptized. He, he was brought up, raised. He's now a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. He has been baptized by John the Baptist. We know the story Earlier before our text today, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He comes up out of the water. A voice from heaven says, This is my son whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist understands that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there's something happening. Jesus is a rabbi and gets baptized by John, but everyone at this point is running after John as the Messiah. John has been preaching fire and brimstone, man. I mean, he's been preaching repentance. He's been doing incredible things, baptizing people. He's been challenging the rulers, challenging Rome, challenging uh, Herod, challenging the religious leaders. He's been doing everything that everyone thought the Messiah might do. He is over here doing this, and everyone's focused here. And wouldn't you know it, right in the midst of the people was the one and they didn't recognize him. Right in the midst of them, right in the circle of people who were around John, Jesus was there, and they didn't recognize him because they were making assumptions about John. And they were saying, he's the one, even though John's saying, I'm not the one. There's the one. And he pointed at Jesus. Now, Jesus is a rabbi, and Jesus was doing what rabbis do. In that day, everyone understood when you became a rabbi, you gathered disciples. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi to have disciples. What they would do is the rabbis would go out into the most educated, most the wealthiest, the most influential parts of Israel, and they would search for people who we would just say they are the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and we're going to make them a rabbi or a a disciple of, of, of me. And so rabbis were all over the countryside, most of them probably in Jerusalem. They were going to the places of learning, into the synagogues. They wanted the best of the best. Why? Because the disciples would reflect on who the 
rabbi was. How good of a rabbi he was. So this gathering of disciples was a very common thing for rabbis. But Jesus didn't go to the best of the best. Jesus went to Galilee. And maybe that doesn't mean anything to you and me. But we know this, Galilee is not where you go to find disciples. These are little fishing towns and farmers and these are uneducated people. As a matter of fact, later on, you remember when, G, when, the, when Peter stands up and he preaches at, at Pentecost, the religious leaders are like, wow, this guy's a disciple of Jesus. Aren't they uneducated? Because they knew these guys just weren't, they didn't make sense to be disciples. But Jesus goes to Galilee to recruit his disciples And this is where we pick up our story. So Jesus now has three disciples. Andrew and an unnamed disciple of John listened to John and chased after Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Well, John said, you're the Messiah, so we want to follow you. He goes, okay, come and see. Let's go. See where I'm staying. And they go. And then along the way, Andrew, the very first thing Andrew does... They don't name the other unnamed disciple. I'm not sure who it is. We don't know who it is. But Andrew goes and finds his brother, Peter. You all know Peter, right? Peter, the the guy who is a loudmouth and obnoxious and said he didn't believe in Jesus. And Jesus, I'm not with the guy. He denied Jesus. Andrew goes and finds Peter. And Peter comes, and now Jesus has four disciples at this point in our story. I'm in chapter 1, verse 43. Here's what it says. The next day, after Jesus has Andrew, right, Peter, did I miss one? No, I didn't. They have three disciples. Andrew, Peter, and an unnamed disciple. We'll we'll leave it there. The next day, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee with his three disciples. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So they find Philip. We don't know if Philip was part of John's disciples. We don't know what's going on there with Philip, but they find him. We don't know if it's Jesus that finds him. It just says, finding Philip. In the original language, we look and it doesn't really give us an indication whether it was all of them found Philip or Jesus found Philip or or Andrew and Peter found Philip. It doesn't really say, but they found this guy named Philip. Right? And Philip, then in turn, after Jesus invites Philip to join them, Philip joins. So now there's four of them. He says, Follow me. And he did. I don't know about you, but it strikes me as interesting how quickly these guys are willing to just drop everything and follow this guy. They don't know Jesus, they've heard about him. John said something about him, but they've never experienced Jesus. They don't know him very well, but they're willing to drop everything they have and follow this guy. To put their lives under his rabbiship, to learn from him, to be taught by him, because they really believe, at this point, that he's the Son of God, sort of. They have a lot of doubts, but they're following anyways. It's interesting. Some 
There is some curiosity in each of these men. Enough curiosity that would cause them to drop everything and follow Jesus. Most of the time, this is how faith grows. This is how faith is born. It's a desire for something better. It's a desire for something different. They wanted something different. They had been waiting and anticipating for the Messiah. And this Jesus seemed to be the best option at the time. So they followed. Their curiosity was the beginning of their faith. Verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. More likely, Peter, Andrew, and Philip knew each other. It says they were both from the town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was this tiny little fishing community up in northern Galilee. They would have known each other. They had to have crossed paths. In a small little first century Jewish community, they would have known each other. Philip, at this point, finds Nathaniel. We don't know a lot about Nathaniel. What we do know is this. He was from Cana. You're like, Bethsaida, Galilee, all of these places are in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. It says Nathanael was from Cana. We don't know where Cana actually was physically. It's long gone. But some think that it might have just been a few miles from Nazareth. Now it's starting to make sense. Nathanael had his assumption about Jesus because Jesus was from Nazareth and Nathanael knew about Nazareth. Nothing good came from Nazareth. You and I think something good came from Nazareth because that's where Jesus lived, right? Mary was from Nazareth. Joseph was from Nazareth. But in that day, Nazareth was a non-place. Nobody went there. Nobody wanted to go there. Nobody trusted anybody from there. Philip's like, Oh, really? You found the one. Who is he? Well, it's this Jesus from Nazareth. Look at 46. Nazareth! Did I wake you up? Nazareth! Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathan said. Come and see, said Philip. Did you catch that? I know you don't believe. I know you're having a hard time. I know that you have this assumption and you're making a judgment call based off of an assumption that you have, something you've heard, something you've seen, an experience you've had. But look, won't you at least just come and see? Nathaniel couldn't believe that the Messiah would come from Nazareth because of an assumption. Nothing good comes from there. But Nathaniel followed Philip. He, did know Je- he didn't know Jesus, but he knew Philip. And sometimes this is, disciples, all you got. Someone may be curious about Jesus, have an assumption about Jesus. They don't know Jesus, but they know you. Philip, Nathaniel, knew Philip. 
And because of that relationship, he went to see. Okay, nothing good can come from Nazareth, but I'll bite. Let's go see. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's important. This is Jesus makes a reference to Jacob, and I'll explain that here in a minute. Every Jewish man there, person there, would have understood Israelite. They get their name Israelite from, from Jacob, and Jacob was a very deceitful person. Verse 51, I'll explain it a little more, but hang with me. Verse 48, how do you know me? Nathaniel said. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. This is kind of a cryptic thing. I'm not sure. Did Jesus see him in his mind's eye? Did Jesus really physically see him? It doesn't say, but next verse. But Philip obviously was dumbfounded and blown away at what Jesus said. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What a strange greeting, right? I mean, usually, hi, I'm Tony. Who are you? It's not, oh, you know, who can I pick on today? Who's a Michigan fan? Where's Jared at today? Jared, where are you at? Who's a uh, Notre Dame fan? I see one back there. He's not raising his hand because he doesn't want me to pick on. That's like me saying, you know, Josh, a true Notre Dame fan who's depressed because his team's not very good, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of, it's a weird greeting. You just don't greet people like that, right? And uh, you just say, hi, my name. But this tells us something about Jesus that I think John wants us to see. It reminds me of our psalm this week. If you did the Common Thread Bible Studies, we were in Psalm 39. And Psalm 39 was a psalm of God knowing us and caring for us, knowing every part of our character, every part of our being. Psalm 139 says, You have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Jesus knew Nathaniel. He spoke into his character, into his being, into his person, and it did something to Nathaniel that made him believe. It made him believe. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than that. You ain't seen nothing yet, Jesus says. Verse 51, And then he added, Here's where I'm going to tie verse 47 to 51. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open." And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does this sound familiar to those of you that's read the book of Genesis? 
What happened in the book of Genesis where there were angels ascending and descending? Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob? Esau and Jacob. You remember Isaac? Isaac was the son, the miracle son of Abraham. All of the Jews believed that they were children of Abraham, but because of they were children of Abraham, they had a right to God's kingdom. But they got their name from Jacob. Not from not from Abraham, not from Isaac, but Jacob. We know Jacob was a scoundrel. As a matter of fact, he was a deceitful person. He was so deceitful, the Bible tells us that when Esau and Jacob, who were twins, were born, Esau was born first. When Jacob came out, he had a hold of the heel or the ankle of his brother Esau. And thus was their life. And we know Jacob deceived his father, deceived Esau, stole the birthright of the eldest in the family. And for years, Jacob has been running from God, running from Esau, trying to find peace for what he has done. And the Bible says right before he was about to meet Esau, he was scared and afraid. He fell asleep. And in that dream, he saw heaven open up and angels were ascending and descending. I know it seems kind of cryptic and weird, doesn't it? To be saying this in this moment. It's like they just had this greeting. Hey, I'm getting some disciples, some guys together to travel with me for the next three years. You interested? And he's like, there, Nathaniel, is a true Israelite. A true man after Jacob. An Israelite. But has no deceit. And then, you have to understand, their worldview was different than ours. They saw the heavens as that which is above the sky. And it was held back. And that's where the gods lived. And down here, that's where people live. And you have temples. And temples are kind of that heaven on earth. Temples were where gods lived. They would come down from the heavens and live in the temples, and that's how people could interact with gods. Why is this important? Well, the reference to Jacob's ladder, Jesus is wanting Nathaniel and his other disciples to know this. You believe me because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? Listen, I'm the ladder. The heavens are about to open up on earth because of me, because of my presence, because I'm here. The heavens are going to open up. You're going to see God do incredible things. You're going to see God's angels coming down and going back up they are going to be going ascending and descending constantly from heaven to earth they are going to come down to earth and god's going to do something so great it's going to blow your sandals off because of me follow me and you'll be a part of it follow me and you're going to see god 
building his kingdom on earth. You're going to see the lame walk, the blind see. You're going to see it. You're going to see lepers healed. You're going to see marriages come back together. You're going to see lost people found. You're going to see disease healed. You're going to see all of this. Why? Because I'm here and I am the ladder between heaven and earth. The heavens are opening up. Jesus has opened up the way for God to do what it is that God wants to do in this earth. And Jesus wants them to know that I'm not going to reveal it all to you yet. Kind of like a good magician. I'm going to give you a little bit and you're going to be amazed, but hang in there. Follow me and you'll be even more amazed. It, doesn't, it does make sense to me that people were disillusioned with Jesus at first. It made more sense for John the Baptist to be the Messiah. The things that Jesus was doing, the amazing, the baptizing, or that John was doing, the baptizing, the preaching, it says that all of Jerusalem and Judea were going to John. It just made sense that John would be the one. But so many of them could not get past their assumption of that that they almost missed the one. And like this great illusionist, Jesus is not always forthcoming. He simply says, come and see. Follow me and see what is going to happen. Come see what your God has done. You only know what you've heard. If you're listening online or you're here in this room this morning, and and I'm going to tie this real quick to us today. We only know what we see and hear and we make assumptions and we draw conclusions. And maybe you at one time in your life was in the church. And maybe at one time in your life, you know, your parents took you to church, but you were disillusioned by that. Maybe someone hurt you. Maybe a parent used religion to control you. Maybe a pastor hurt you, or a youth worker hurt you, or another Christian hurt you, or the church just hurt you. And you've made the assumption that that is what Jesus is like. Can anything good come from that? And you've walked away. Or you're thinking about walking away. Let me tell you, and I want to say this honestly as a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that there are people who make assumptions, people in the church make assumptions. If you could meet this Jesus that called Nathaniel and Peter and Philip and Andrew, if you could meet him and follow him enough to learn that he is nothing like that. He's not. I'm sorry that you have been exposed to the bad side of religion. 
But Jesus is not like that. I want to invite you today to put your assumptions aside, to leave open the possibility of what Jesus can do in your life, your family's life, your community, your school, your workplace. How about we just start with you? If you'll open your heart up and not have these assumptions about Jesus and simply because you've seen Christians act a certain way or you've seen on the news people marching, holding up signs that seem to be uh, God hates pe- these people or those people or, you know, or, or they have Jesus signs and there's violence in the crowd and they have Jesus signs and you see this stuff and you're like, if that's what Jesus is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Can anything good come from that? No, it can't. Because it has nothing to do with Jesus. If you could just meet him. Listen, you have to follow Jesus if you want to know him. If you are making an assumption about him and have never truly followed him, then you don't know him. You have to follow Jesus if you want to know him. You can't make assumptions simply by hearing what others say or seeing what others do or maybe reading something about Christians or about Him. Not even reading your Bible is good enough to know Him. You have to follow Him. Just like Nathaniel and the others, Jesus, they come up to you and say, can anything good for... Jesus is like, come and see. Follow me. And I'll show you. And boy, did He show them. So how do you do that? Real quick, some very practical. How do you follow Jesus? I mean, you know, Dave, if I ask you to follow me and I'd walk down there, you'd get up and I'd walk over here and you'd follow me, right? And you'd just be like right here behind me because you see me. I'm walking over there and I want you to come. If I turn around, you're not there. I'm going, yo, Dave, get over here. That's following somebody. But how do you follow Jesus? Well, I think the first thing you do is you decide to follow him. You've got to make it up in your heart. You've got to make it up in your mind and heart that I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn all that I can about him. I'm going, to, I'm going to go and learn everything I can. I'm going to read about him. I'm going to read the Gospels. I'm going to open my heart and my mind to the possibilities of what Jesus can do in my life. You have to do that. But then I think the, 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 the next thing to follow him He's not physically like here for us to walk around and Jesus is going to Walmart. Let's go to Walmart, right? It's not like that. What it means to follow Jesus is this, that we will go where Jesus will be. Yeah, I know. Where is that? Well, there's clues from his life on earth. He said this to his disciples, where two or three are gathered, there I will be. You want to follow Jesus? Show up. Gather with other believers. You learn about Jesus from others. You see Jesus in others. You are Jesus to others. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, go hang out with other Christians. Jesus spent time not only with his disciples, but he spent time with those who were far from God. You need to spend time 
with people who don't think like you, who aren't like you. You need to spend time with people who aren't believers, who are far from God. You say, well, why should I do that? I mean, that's religion separates us. Jesus blew into town and he's like, they're like, why is he sitting down and eating and drinking with sinners? Because that's what Jesus does. He loves people. And so should we. If you want to follow him, go hang out with someone who doesn't know God. And just love them. Jesus spent a lot of time serving others. If you want to follow Jesus, go to those places in our community, in our world that need help, that need served. Start by serving your family. Start by serving your church. Start by serving those in the community. If you want to follow Jesus, follow him that way. Jesus spent time with his father. You got to hang out with God. Quiet time, peaceful time. You want to follow Jesus? Show up. Hang out with Christians. Go to those who don't know him. This is how you follow Jesus. You go where Jesus would be. And we can know that from reading in the Gospels. So I want to challenge you today to put your assumptions aside. Don't get frustrated or think that you've got it all figured out. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, you you ain't got it all figured out, trust me. And just follow. Come and see how good God is. Let me pray for you today, and then I'm going to dismiss you, okay? Our Father, I thank you for this day. I know, Lord, that there are some listening and there are some in this room that they have made assumptions about who Jesus is. They've made these assumptions, Lord, and it's keeping them from truly knowing you. Like Nathaniel, can anything good come from that? But yet, Lord, you are good, and you are loving, and you are kind. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to dismiss. We're going to go ahead and skip the last song, okay? Pastor Tony went a little long today. Um, so... God bless you guys. Is it okay if I let you go? Do you want to sing? It's up to you guys. If you want to sing, you can stay. If you want to go, you can. No, I'm not going to do that to you. Because then people will be like, I really want to go. But, (laughs) you know, let's stand. And I'm going to dismiss you. All right. Go and see. Go and see. Right. You can't know if you don't go. Go and see today, this week. Go to those places where Jesus might be and see, follow him, and be God's people on earth. God bless you. You're dismissed. Now get out of here, all right?